0: Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this opportunity to meditate upon Christ today in Sunday school. Uh, We pray that all that we say and think and understand would be true, uh, that it would be not only true, but we would find it beautiful, Father, we would find Christ beautiful above all things and to be desired above all things as we consider his person and work. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Uh, the, the subject of Christ, the uh, Christ as an object of our study, uh, can seem like an overwhelming subject. Uh, Christ isn't one of the many things that we learn about in Scripture. Uh, Christ is the very heart of Scripture. All of it is about Him, right? Uh, Christ tells us this Himself. When uh, in the, the Gospel accounts after His resurrection, He's on the road to Emmaus uh, with the two disciples, and they don't recognize Him. Uh, And finally, he breaks bread, and he's he's telling them that all of the scriptures at at that time, he's referring to the Old Testament, all of the scriptures are about him. We see the New Testament authors putting this into practice as they quote the Old Testament, make allusions to the Old Testament, and they explain it in reference to Christ. Uh, Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. Now, we believe that God is a triune God, one God three persons in the Godhead. Uh, and that they are, uh, this is difficult, Trinitarianism. It's not that Jesus has all the same qualities as the Father. That, he, that his divinity is of the same sort with the divinity of the Father. It is that his divinity is the Father's divinity, is the Spirit's divinity. There is one Godhead. One indivisible Godhead three persons in that Godhead. Now, this is not a class on Trinitarianism, but as you'll discover, if you don't already know this, uh, when we study Christ, we're going to end up having to touch on these questions of divinity uh, that touch on Trinity and the natures of Christ, as we'll do in a moment. But all of Scripture, though there is uh, this Godhead, there are these three. Uh, Though we understand these three with respect to uh, their their particular work in the world, and that Christ, born in time, is also fully God, and and as fully God, is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, though this is true, Christ is at the center of God's work of redemption in history. He is the one promised. He is the one that accomplishes everything. Uh, he is, as we've heard this morning, uh, our husband our groom we the church are his bride he has uh, he has done uh, all manner of things for us we'll talk about that more in a minute and will continue in history to do so uh, throughout the rest of eternity uh, everything about scripture is pointing us to Christ as the glorious the most glorious the most beautiful person Uh, or to to use a more philosophical term, the most beautiful object upon which we could possibly place our faith and our love. Uh, The the person of Christ and his finished work is so powerful that as we'll see uh, over time as we, we go through this study, that we are finally perfectly sanctified, perfectly made perfect when we lay our eyes on him. At least twice in the New Testament, it says that when we see him, we shall be made perfect. Right? This is our Christ. This is our Messiah, the anointed one for us. So, as we come to the book of Hebrews, what Hebrews, what the author of Hebrews is doing, big picture in the book, is he's saying to his readers, whatever else out there you think is lovely, whatever else out there you think you can rely on and particularly within the the Jewish faith of the Old Testament. All of it pales in comparison to Christ. In fact, it must, by definition, pale in comparison because all of it is intended to point to Him. It's all a foreshadowing. If you see the priesthood and you say to yourself, what a lovely priesthood, what a glorious priesthood, what an amazing work they do for us. They are only an example, an illustration of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And we could do this, and the author of Hebrews does, over and over again with all all different offices and people throughout the Old Testament. And so the the, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, is a letter whose whose constant refrain is Christ is better. Christ is better. So he's going to hold Christ up. How then do we begin to even wrap our minds around something so glorious, around something so difficult uh, to understand, around something that, uh, that is, is described at such length and in so much detail in Scripture over and over again? And the answer to that question I'm going to suggest to you as a beginning is, uh, is to begin to understand how theologians have done this, how they've organized all the information we have about Christ. Now, it's not just an academic discipline, right? Uh, And we're not computers crunching data. But nonetheless, facts have been given to us. And part of our gazing on Christ, part of our uh, basking in the glory of Christ, a glory that transforms us into the same image of Christ, is to begin to come to an an understanding of these facts. Uh, And the way that we do this with anything, and particularly with Christ, is by beginning to organize these facts in such a way that we can grasp them. And so there's a, a series of, of dual words, to, uh, of words in combination that we've used historically to understand Christ that I think are very helpful, and that's how we're, we're going to work through our introduction to the doctrine of Christ today. First is uh, Christ in his person and work. Uh, this is the most fundamental way that we organize all that God has revealed Uh, to us about Christ and His Word. Uh, That is Christ's person and His work. When we talk about the person of Christ, we're talking about his, His identity, His makeup. Specifically, we understand Christ to be fully God and fully man. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus Christ. Now, there's probably some assumption some uh, implicit thought patterns uh, for many of us, that he somehow set that divinity aside when he took on humanity. Uh, That he, he was somehow less God for a little while, while he was on earth. We've got to put that out of our heads. Christ is not, in any sense, less. God cannot make himself less. He ceases to be God. And Jesus Christ did not subtract something when he took on humanity, but he added. It's very strange language um, as I pirouette up here looking for my Bible. Uh, A very well-known passage, but we perhaps don't read it slowly enough and think about it carefully enough. Uh, A passage, Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2, in these first 11 verses, uh, as Paul is talking about Christ's example of humility... Uh, Look at what he says. Uh, This is Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is uh, the the word here in the Greek is uh, is from the word group uh, kenosis. Kenosis is an emptying. This is the verb form of kenosis. He emptied himself, but look at how he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Christ empties himself by adding humanity to his divinity and the two being joined in a union that cannot be divided but, but cannot be confused. All right, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. In a sense, to, to begin to study the person of Christ is to begin with the most difficult part. But this is, this is where Scripture always begins. When it, when it considers Christ, it starts with His person and moves to His work. We're going to see that in the book of Hebrews, for example, where he starts with the person of Christ in chapter 1. And it's only having established that humanity and that divinity that he's going to move into the work of Christ. Christ is fully God, and at no time does he cease to be fully God. Now, in context here in Philippians 2, what is Paul talking about when he says that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a man? He emptied himself in the sense that he was willing to be humbled. This does not involve a ceasing to be God. Uh, It doesn't involve him uh, not being all-knowing not being ever-present. He is every bit God the entire time. That does not cease to be. He empties Himself not by giving up divine attributes. He empties Himself by giving up divine prerogative. He humbles Himself. His glory is hidden in His humanity. By taking humanity on the Creator becomes or 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 adds to himself creation he becomes the created there's a humbling in this uh, one that i don't think we can we can appreciate even though we're capable of making things and we understand that when we've made something it belongs to us and it it is entirely beneath us if you will in terms of its its place in the the order of creation because we have made it And yet, the distance between us and the thing we have made is finite. The distance between God the Creator and all that He has created is infinite. Christ, the second person of the Trinity who created all things and sustains all things, holds all things together, Himself took on flesh. And these two things, this divinity and this humanity, are held together in a union, Uh, I didn't put it on the handout. If you've got something to write with, you probably want to add it. It's an important term. Uh, We call it the hypostatic union. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. Hypostatic union. The the hypostatic union is the term that theologians use to describe this fully God, fully man, together in union with one another. Christ took on flesh. The very act of taking on flesh, of being conceived uh, in the womb of Mary, of being born into the world, of living as a human in the world, is itself a profound, infinite, incomprehensible act of humility on the part of Christ. His human nature, we have a tendency to do the same thing in the same sense that we, we try to explain difficult things about Christ by diminishing His divinity. So Jesus says, no man knows that day or hour but the Father. Not even the Son knows. And we go, okay, so He doesn't know. So He's not all-knowing. So He's given up His omniscience. And that's that's not true. It's not correct. It's difficult. And I'm not going to explain it just yet. Okay? He does not give up any aspect of His divine nature. And in the same way, we have a tendency to minimize His human nature. As the church was wrestling with this in history, Uh, particularly in the the opening centuries after Christ. Uh, In those centuries, as the church wrestled with his person, the claims that Scripture makes that he's fully God and fully man, there were those who attempted to minimize his human nature. Uh, Some of them were motivated by a low view of created things. Uh, Gnosticism uh, in the early church was a, a, a view that said that physical things were bad, spiritual things were good, our bodies are bad, our souls are good, the body will be destroyed and the soul set free, and at that point you'll be perfect. Again, completely contrary to Scripture. If nothing else, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and the, the very resurrection of Christ himself, as Paul says there, puts that to shame. His human nature is fully human. That is, he has a human body. His flesh is is actual human flesh. He doesn't appear to be human. He's actually human. He has a human soul. It's not a human body with a divine soul in it. God did not take a a human body and like a puppet, like a, a puppet master puts his hand up inside the puppet, fill this human body with divinity so that it would be animated. He has an actual human soul. Everything that is inherent to humanity is true of Christ. He has a will, a human will, and a divine will. Christ has two wills. Those who denied this in the early church were called monothelites, mono, one, thelite will, and they were condemned as heretics. If Christ does not have a human will, Christ is not human. Right? He has everything that is inherent, everything that's native to the human person. Sin, it turns out, is not inherent. We tend to think of it as inherent because we've never met anybody who didn't have it, right? Uh, We all, on a regular basis, give the impression that sin is part of being a human being. It's not. Adam and Eve were fully human. In fact, not just fully human. They were more human before the fall than they were after. And we will be more human in glory than we are now. And Christ is already more human, has always been, and in his glory is ultimately the definition of a human. We are all copies of the original. Though he was not the first human born or made, Jesus Christ is the perfect human. The human upon which all of us are modeled. Christ's humanity is a full humanity. He is like us in every way, the author of Hebrews says, yet without sin. And so Christ is fully God and fully man. This was wrestled with in the early church. On the back of your handout, you'll see the definition of Chalcedon. Uh, This is the fourth ecumenical council, uh, the the first three being Nicaea and uh, Constantinople and Ephesus. Uh, These universal councils are unique in the history of the church. Ultimately, there were seven of them. Uh, and these are, are councils where the entire church on earth at the time was present—not uh, not in all of its members, but every congregation had a representative at the council. So that when this council met, the council was able to speak for the church on earth. Right? I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. We're not going to get that again until Jesus comes back. Right? Uh, These universal councils came together in order to to work through difficulties, disputes, particularly early on with the Trinity. How are we to understand the Trinity? And with Christ, how are we to understand the person of Christ? The fourth ecumenical council is particularly taken up with this, and the result is what's called the definition of Chalcedon, which we hold to be a faithful exposition of God's Word, and a faithful description of Christ's person. And it's short enough, and it's important enough in history that I want to read it really quickly. Uh, Of course, this is translated from the Greek in which it was originally written. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, so they're anchoring what they're about to say in the faith that they've received. So not only do they find this to be true in God's Word, but they believe that this is what the apostles taught uh, and has been handed down in the church up to this point. 451, right? So uh, 451, we're about 300 years into the the church post-Christ and most of the apostles. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. No seeming, no partiality, no a little bit of this, a little bit of that, He's not what uh, what in Latin is referred to as a, uh, a tertium quid, uh, a third thing, right? He's not, not God and not human, but he's something completely different from everything and everybody. That's not correct. He's God and man. He is the God-man, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. Reasonable not being the uh, way we would use it like in arguments, right? That's not reasonable. Be reasonable. Uh, no, uh, that is, it was capable of reason, right? Uh, it, it's not a shell filled with divinity, but is itself reasonable, the soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards His Godhead. Remember I said earlier, Jesus doesn't share the same kind of substance as divinity. His His substance as divine is not the same kind of substance as the Father, It's one and the same substance, uh, as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us, as regards his manhood. Like us, in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages. So there's the the second person of the Trinity. But yet, as regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation. So the the man, Jesus Christ, is not, as a person, eternal in in history, right? He's he's eternal with respect to his divinity, but his humanity has a beginning. His humanity begins at the conception of the Holy Spirit. He's born for us men and our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer. See what they're doing there with God-bearer? They're acknowledging that she gave birth to Jesus and Jesus is God. Therefore, she is the God bearer. The church argued about this at length in the early centuries. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. And this is where we really come into the, the strength of Chalcedon here recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. So that's, that ends up being kind of the last word on Christ's person. We're going to continue throughout the history of the church to wrestle with this, to seek to understand it better, uh, to, to, to learn how to speak of this in a way that's true and clear. Uh, but this is the last statement that the church is going to make in universal counsel about the person of Christ with respect to His divinity and his humanity. Uh, the the word is settled. So, yeah. How, how do we relate to Mary being the God-bearer with her being labeled as be the mother of God? Yeah, the mother of God and God-bearer are both, they're, they're synonymous terms that the church was happy to confess. She's the mother of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, she is the mother of God. It was. Yeah, God-bearer. Uh, Theotokos is the Greek that the church argued over, and Theotokos is sometimes translated God-bearer, sometimes mother of God. Um, yeah, it was controversial. Uh, in some sense, it ought to be controversial, shouldn't it? Uh, that God was born to a woman. Uh, the, the language in no way implies any beginning in God, but is meant to to hold carefully to the divinity of Christ. Now, there's, there's a, a little formula that might help you begin thinking about this if you struggle with it, and that is to make the distinction that the church has in history uh, that we believe is, is consistent with Scripture, that Christ's divine, his divinity and his humanity are, are what we refer to as natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. But he's just one person. Christ is not two persons, a divine person and a human person. He's one person with a divine nature and a human nature. And this is, this is hopefully what will be helpful to you. Natures don't act. Persons do. So that everything Christ does, we may rightly say Christ did this. If you ask the question, did God do it? The answer is yes. If you ask the question, did his humanity do it? The answer is yes, because we don't speak in terms of the the divinity doing this and the humanity doing that. So when we think about Christ and his work, which we're going to get to in a minute, uh, it would be incorrect to think of God, uh, to think of Christ, uh, and you, you read that he healed somebody and you say, well, that was the divinity. And then you read that he suffered and died, and you go, well, that was the humanity. No. No, Christ, the person, healed. Christ, the person, died. So that we might rightly say, both God and man, right? We don't say God did this and man did that. Christ is the one who did these things. And Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Now, are there things Christ does that are, are um, and we make a fine distinction here, there's a lot of subtlety in Christology, especially the person of Christ. Are there things that Christ does that are consistent with his divinity and other things that he does that are consistent with his humanity? Yes. Right? He's able to do the things he does because he is divine and human. We don't deny his divinity and his humanity. But in the end, we have to say, Christ did it. Did God do it? Yes. Did, did Christ, the human being, do it? Yes. Yes, always yes, because Christ is the one who did it. And I'll give you an example of where we have to think carefully about this. Let's go back to his, uh, his miracles. How does Christ do his miracles? In what power does he do them? How is he able to do the things he does? You're, you're likely to get it wrong, and there's no shame in that. So just shout it out. I won't make fun. Ah, that's the right answer. I want the wrong answer first, right? We, I think we have a tendency to think to ourselves, Christ is able to heal because he's God. And he is God. And his acts of healing are acts of the person who is God and man. But Jesus himself tells us that's not the power in which he does it is his own divine identity. Christ heals by the power of the Spirit. You remember when he's casting out demons and the, uh, the, the religious leaders say, uh, he does that in the power of Satan. And Jesus has some some pretty sharp comebacks to them there uh, about their own kids. And uh, But do you remember what he says there? He says, but if I cast out in, by the power of the Spirit of God then the kingdom is upon you. If you go and you read any of the gospel accounts with a single question in your mind, where is the Holy Spirit? You're going to find Him everywhere. The Spirit leads Christ into the wilderness. The Spirit sustains Christ in the wilderness. The Spirit leads Christ out of the wilderness. The Spirit is the power by which Christ knows. He's the power by which Christ commands. It's, it's, uh, It's really important for us to understand this, not just so that we get the person of Christ right, but because what's true of Christ is true for us as well. Not existentially, we're not divine. But Christ does these things by the power of the Spirit. Do you remember what he says to his disciples? You will do this and greater things than this. The Jesus who stands in the boat and tells the sea, the wind, and the waves to calm does so in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that dwells in us. He's exercising dominion. A dominion that was given to Adam. A dominion that's been... I don't know if lost is quite the right word, but we've certainly made a mess of it. What Christ puts on display is the dominion that will be ours again. Don't you know that you will judge men and angels, Paul says? We, I think, you know, everybody in history has to resist the urge to err, or err, I was, I was corrected once, err, uh, the tendency to err, either by emphasizing the divinity to the expense, at the expense of the humanity, or the humanity at the expense of the divinity. I think, though, most of us are more inclined to sacrifice the humanity at the expense of the divinity. It's easy to think of Jesus as God and just to simply attribute all the crazy, wild, amazing, miraculous things He does to His divinity. But that's not how the Gospels portray Him. Christ does these things by the power of the Spirit. He, he, has, he rests in the Spirit, trusts the Spirit, is guided by the Spirit, prays to the Father, is dependent utterly on God, the Father and the Spirit, and teaches us in so doing to be reliant as well. say so we sort of helpfully see that in the early church too, uh, in Acts, when Jesus departs, leaves the Spirit, and the apostles are still able to do some of the sort of miraculous healings mm-hmm. and things. That's right, uh, which helps us understand that's right. Power was coming from. Yeah, even even raising people from the dead, right? right? Uh, there's there's this moment in the Gospels, where it says Christ was not able to perform miracles in a town. Did he cease to be God? No. But if he was able to do them because he was God, and he didn't cease to be God, how could he not be able to do them? And you get the exact same circumstance. Do you remember Paul in the book of Acts? Paul says, we were desperate to go over here, but the Spirit wouldn't let us. And he has a vision of a man across the Aegean saying, come over here to us, right? We see Paul actually being led in the same way in his ministry that Christ is led in his ministry. And so it's it's vital for us to appreciate the humanity of Christ. The author of Hebrews is going to, to point us towards this appreciation when he says he was like us in every way, yet without sin. And that he knows our sorrows. He knows our grief. He's been tempted in every way, even as we have been, yet without sin. The humanity of Christ is vital uh, to our salvation. It's vital to our understanding of who He is, and therefore our understanding of how He loves us, and His grace and His mercy towards us. The, the person of Christ spills over into the work of Christ. The two, like Christ Himself, are not ultimately separable, but we have to to hold them apart for, for a moment to be able to consider each well. Uh, Christ's work is only possible because of His person. Christ is only able to save us because He is fully God and fully man. What He does is not no, no human is capable of. And thus Christ is divine. What He does must be done by a human Humanity is under the curse. Humanity must pay the price. If God comes and only seems to be human, then humanity hasn't paid the price, has it? If He comes and He's only partly human, then by definition, He's not human. And humanity has not paid the price. Humanity is under the curse. Humanity must pay. I said this during worship. God does not forgive us by pretending we didn't sin. There's that saying that's not untrue, but it's, it's not always helpful, right? That, that when you're justified, it's just as if you never sinned. That's helpful, understood the right way. But what we don't want to do with that is fall into the, the mistaken belief that what God has done in forgiveness is pretended we never sinned. It's much more difficult, much more amazing, and much more beautiful than that. He is both just and the justifier. How is Christ both just and the justifier? He is just because not a single sin in all of history will go unpunished. The wrath of God will be executed, and in Christ has been executed in part, against all of the sins in history. None of them are overlooked, none excused. Justice will be done. But he is also the justifier. How does he do this? How can he be perfectly just and punish every single sin in history and yet we don't suffer the wrath of God for our sins? It's because Jesus Christ, God himself, fully God and fully man has come, has taken our sin and guilt upon himself and received the wrath of God against it so that God is just, but done it on our behalf so that God is the justifier. This is the work of Christ and it requires him to be fully God and fully man. I'm going to pause for questions. Any questions before we move on to the work of Christ? Well, it's it, it, the question you're asking is Christ in heaven omnipresent in His humanity uh, is probably the, how uh, do I don't want to characterize it, probably the single greatest debate between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers and between the Reformers themselves in the Reformation because of the Lord's Supper. R- Roman Catholicism holds that Christ is present at the table in the elements. The bread is actually his body. The wine is actually his blood. It's, it's just regular bread and regular wine until the priest holds it up and pronounces the words. And because he's a priest, duly ordained, and he says the right words, uh, the bread and the wine transform into the, the actual body and the actual blood of Christ. Now, if you were to go up there and look at it, you, you would see it's actually still bread and wine. And they explain that away uh, with uh, some philosophical categories. But they, they affirm and insist that it's actually his body and blood. The Reformed argued in response that that would mean that Christ is in his humanity is ubiquitous. That is, he's omnipresent. And, and ubiquity is not human. If Christ was able to be everywhere all at once with respect to his humanity, he would not be human. And if he's not human, we're all still in our sins, right? So uh, the answer to your question, which is a good question, and one the church broadly uh, considered has did debate for a very long time, and it still separates us. That's still one of the things we disagree with the Roman Catholic Church about. Uh, We do not believe that the bread and the wine are the actual body and blood, but are instead symbols. That represent the body and blood of Christ. Uh, because Christ is not present in his humanity uh here when we come to the table. He's present spiritually, but not physically. Other questions? I think uh, Billy, did you have a question? just a comment. I might even move my question if you want. Uh just an observation to the earlier discussion that the spirit drove him out into the building Mhm. Yeah. would you go back and touch on something you alluded to that Jesus said he didn't know when the judgment was going to be? I've read Ken Hughes made a statement in one of his writings that he didn't know when he was on earth. He knows now. He's in heaven with the Father. But that's always what Christ knows. He knows because the spirit reveals it to him. It's another sense in which the spirit is the one upon whom Christ relies uh, in the incarnation. Uh, There are times, you know, in the gospel accounts where Jesus knows something. And there's just no way for him to have known that. And again, we often want to attribute that to his divinity. The problem is there are times he doesn't know. Um. You know, he's walking through the crowd, being crushed by a crowd, and uh, the the woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And he's apparently not looking that direction. He says he knows, in a way that we would not expect to know ourselves, he knows that somebody touched him. But he doesn't know who, unless we think he's being coy. right? Because what does he do? He turns around and he says, who touched me? Uh, There there are times, you know, he doesn't know when the second coming is and judgment. Uh, So it also says that he grew in wisdom and stature. So there are things Christ doesn't know. But there are also things he knows that no ordinary person would know. How is that? It can't be that his divinity is the reason he knows. And sometimes he turns it on and sometimes he turns it off. It's that what he knows, he knows because he's been told by the Father. The Spirit is the one who reveals to him. Uh, he knows what's in the hearts of men, right? Another phrase from the Gospels. How? How does he know what's in the hearts of men? Because the Spirit has revealed it to him. And so uh, Christ is utterly reliant upon the Spirit. So to come back to that particular question, I, would, I don't know whether he knows now or not uh, in heaven. Uh, he didn't know on earth because the Spirit had not revealed it to him. Uh, and maybe this the spirit has now and maybe he hasn't. I don't know. um who was it that you said? Kent. yeah, Kent Hughes. so Kent Hughes, fantastic theologian I'm happy to to say he's probably got a really good reason to believe that Jesus knows now. Other questions. Okay, the work of Christ then. Yeah. Oh I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we say then that the empty is Christ restraining his divine ability, right? Because we say he doesn't know uh certain things, he's only submitting himself to what the spirit reveals. Is that genosis you know, then this restraining of divine ability on his time on earth? Why still truly God it's being restrained because the world of the it's possible, and there, there are those who have read Philippians 2 that way. Um, in the Reformed tradition, we usually don't read it that way uh, because of the context. Everything in the context suggests humility. Um, there, there's a, you know Certainly, there's a great deal of mystery in the person of Christ. There's a, a point at which there's a curtain, and we're just not allowed to see on the other side of that curtain. Uh, and so there, it may be true that somehow there's this restraint, uh, a self-restraint that he exercises. We, we don't even begin to know how that would work, right? Um, yeah, there, there's no example. We can't say Jesus being fully God and fully man is like, right? There's nothing in all of creation or history that's like Jesus, fully God and fully man. And so all we know about it is what we're told. And in the context of Philippians 2, the focus is all on his humility. Uh, that Christ emptied himself in the sense that he, he, his glory was veiled, right? Uh, he did not claim uh, the, the worship that was due to him. Uh, he accepts worship when it's given, but you don't see Christ walking around expecting everybody to bow down to him and worship him, right? But he's due that worship. Uh, and so there's a, a humility. It's Christ, I, I think probably in the words of Christ, no greater or more clear uh, no clearer uh, example of Philippians 2 than when Christ says the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. That's the emptying right there. Um, yeah, there may have been some kind of self-restraint with respect to his divine uh, character, but I, I wouldn't even know where to begin, how to explain that. Um, and I, I wouldn't I probably wouldn't go to Philippians 2 to make the point either. Um, but man, Philippians 2 is a difficult passage that uh, the church, again broadly considered, has wrestled with quite a bit throughout history. And there's even a a, a heresy called the the Canonic heresy um, that says that he actually stopped being divine. That's what Paul means here. He's not divine while he's human, right? Yeah, but again, rejected by the church as heresy. So, okay. Um, Let's take a look at his work. Of course, we've already touched on his work uh, in some senses, but when we speak of the work of Christ, we speak of that work with respect to his person. That is, as I've already explained, it's improper to speak of the nature's acting. Natures do not act, persons act. Christ's work, therefore, does not consist of some acts performed by the divinity or performed upon the deity, and some acts performed by the humanity or performed upon the humanity, as though Jesus could only operate in one of the two natures at a time and switched back and forth. That's not biblical Christianity. That is not the Christ of the Bible. The work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, is redemption in a word. And is understood in terms of, uh, and here we get to some more of these word pairs. We've got person and work. We also describe what Christ did in his work in terms of his active and his passive obedience. In terms of his humiliation and exaltation. Uh, and in terms of his three offices, prophet, priest, and king. We're going to see all of this come out in the book of Hebrews. Uh, They have as their end the glory of the Father, that, that is the works of Christ, have as their end the glory of the Father and the redemption of the people the Father has given to him to redeem. This redemption is accomplished by meeting the demands of the covenant of works, which are perfect obedience, and removing the curse of that covenant, which is death, alienation from God, the wrath of God, all under the heading of the curse of the covenant of works. Uh, So this is a, a summary. Obviously, millions of pages have been written in history unpacking these things. But everything that we can say about Christ can and is considered under these headings of his person and his work. And then that work is understood in terms of his obedience, his humiliation, exaltation, and his three offices. We've got just a few minutes left, and so um, I want to point out some resources. There at the bottom, you have the definition of Chalcedon printed on the back of the handout. Uh, Also, the standards of our church, the Westminster Standards. Uh, In particular, I've pointed you to chapter 8 of the Confession, Questions 36 through 57 and 68 of the larger catechism. And questions 21 through 28 of the shorter catechism. And so if you don't have a copy of the Westminster Standards, I would encourage you to get one. I'm even happy to buy you one. If you don't have one and and you can't afford it, please let me know. We will get you a copy. Uh, Also, the Dutch Standards. So uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, as we've just spent a lot of time Uh, talking about in our history series that we just finished, uh, are thought of today mostly as as a Scottish uh, tradition. Uh, Even though it was the English who wrote it, uh, it was under Scottish influence, and the Scots claimed it afterwards, and the English abandoned it. And so we, as members of a PCA church and the the Presbyterian Church in America, belong to a Scottish heritage, which is, uh, theologically, the Westminster Standards. The Dutch church... Uh, is is honestly, in terms of its doctrine, uh, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with any differences in actual doctrine, but their confessional statements are known as the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the uh, Canons of Dort. Uh, and so this is just one example. You can find them printed up and free online and all the rest. Uh, but in this volume here, you have those. And if you'll look at your handout, the Belgic Confession addresses uh, the person and work of Christ in Articles 10 and 17 through 26. And the Heidelberg Catechism uh, labels its content three different ways. Uh, and so I've given you all three of those labels here. Uh, it, it does so under the heading of God the Son, uh, which covers Lord's Day 11 through 19, because they the Dutch have a tradition of preaching through their catechism on Sunday nights. And so they assign content to each Sunday of the year. So it's Lord's Day 11 through 19. Also, you can find it, all of this is the same content, questions and answers uh, 29 through 52 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, As we go through, so what I'm going to do next week is an introduction to the book itself. And then we're just going to start working through Hebrews. I'm not going to be in a hurry. Uh, we're just going to get as far as we can get each week, and we're going to really dig in. It's going to be Bible study. It's not going to be uh, a sermon. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys during the week be studying Hebrews. Start right now with chapter one and just camp out in chapter one, uh, and and come in with your questions and your observations. And we're going to look at how the author of Hebrews is using the Old Testament uh, in order to understand Christ. Uh, and to compare Christ to those things that some of his readers might be tempted to go back to. Also each week, uh, I say each week, I don't know how frequent it'll be, but I'm, I'd be thrilled if I could do it every week. I want to recommend one good resource to you on Christology. Some of these things are going to help you with your your theology, right They're going to help you with categories and how things ought to be understood and stated right Some of them are going to be more devotional some of them are going to be a little difficult uh, in different ways. So, the first one I'm going to recommend is A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ by Mark Jones. And you see how thin this is, how little it is. Uh, it's, uh, you know, you're probably going to sit down and, in however many readings, uh, to really. Think carefully about what you're reading. This is maybe five or six hours. If you just wanted to read it, you'd get through it in two. But uh, as little as it is, it is it, It's I just read it uh, this week. It's absolutely my favorite introduction to Christology ever. He manages to cram so much good stuff into this little book and yet make, make it clear and devotional. I mean, there are moments... Uh, Let's see. I I marked some things. Be patient with me. This is some of, of how he reads, right? To behold God in Christ is to behold His glory. And the sight of this glory is something that saints on earth must long patiently for while they live by faith in the Son of God who loved them and gave Himself for them. In Christ alone, we have the fullest and best view of the glory of God. There are two ways to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, by faith and by sight. In this world, Christians desire to see Christ face to face. This is why we long for heaven. But in this world, Christ's sheep live by faith, whereas in the world to come, they will live by sight, and so apprehend Christ visibly. As we live by faith in this world, we must ask ourselves whether we contemplate the glory of Christ's person and work. Indeed, our growth in grace may be discerned by answering that question. A true Christian is one in whose heart God has shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, the glory of the invisible God shines forth. Our faith is directed towards Christ crucified, risen, and ascended. Faith in Christ is the fountain of our evangelical obedience. For the just not only are justified by faith, but live by faith. In fact, the best privilege in this life is beholding Christ's glory by faith. To put it differently, only those who behold Christ by faith in this world will have the privilege of beholding Him by sight in heaven. Our heavenly enjoyment of the person of Christ will be by sight. This vision is a transforming vision. It changes us into the image of Christ. That seems to be the meaning of John's words in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This may appear to be a radical statement. But we should remember that beholding the glory of God in this life by faith is the means by which we are transformed into the image of God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So just as a parent is transformed by the sight of their missing child, or a student is transformed when they look first at their acceptance letter to college, believers will be in a far more transcending manner, utterly and perfectly transformed by the sight of the person of Jesus Christ and His regal glory. I don't know about you, but that's worth meditating on, right? Uh, And the, the good news is it's not only really little. There's three chapters, uh, but it's also really cheap. I think it's $4 on Amazon or something like that. It's uh, it's A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ. The author is Mark Jones. A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ by Mark Jones. Uh, the, our confessional statements are fantastic on Christology. I would encourage you to, this week, uh, not only begin digging into Hebrews one, but take a look at these resources. The Westminster Standards, in particular, uh, the the Heidelberg and the Belgic are, are excellent as well. They they're fantastic statements of truth that are succinct, and that if we stop long enough to actually meditate on them, uh, we we will find that we're gazing on Christ. And so I would encourage you uh, to do that. We're going to do that in His Word in the Book of Hebrews for however many months to come. So, we've done it again. We've gone five minutes over. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, And we pray as we long to gaze on Him, uh, as we long to apprehend Him by sight, uh, that You would grant patience to us, uh, that we would trust that Christ will return in Your perfect timing, that in the meantime, we will behold His glory by faith. Father, uh, give us an insatiable appetite to know Jesus Christ, uh, to find Him in His Word. We pray that Your Spirit uh, would meet us in the Word, uh, would, uh, would, Father, work a vision of Christ in us and for us that is so beautiful that we will want nothing else but Him. Uh, we pray that You would continue to do this work until Christ returns to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.